Our message this morning is entitled, The Father's Love. Clicker is not working. That's all right. Please go on to the next slide. Thank you. The name is Wesley Allen Dodd. Wesley Allen Dodd. Now, if you don't know about Wesley Allen Dodd, this man hey, is well known uh, in the in in history of American death sentence. You see, this, this man was the first man who introduced the death sentence in the U.S. courts. Wesley Allen Dodd was the first man that ever was sentenced to death in the U.S. court. You see, Wesley Allen Dodd wasn't always a bad person. As you can see here, him being arrested. You see, he grew up in a house that was, in some way you would say, loveless. You see, love was missing in, in his home as he was growing up. You see, his parents even didn't pay any attention to him. And gave more attention to his two other siblings. Much more, you see, when Wesley Allen Dodd was growing up, he started to... Um, acquire some, some sort of uh, disturbing sexual uh, habits. So much more that his parents noticed it, but because they were getting into a, a divorce, they decided not to attend to his need, and in fact, they gave him even much less attention to their divorce. And while suffering from a fatherless um, and motherless um, situation in his own life, he went his way getting attention in different ways. And so Wesley decided to go and starting to molest children. And he started first with the ones close to him, his cousins and, and nephew and nieces, and, and then he went on and went on. And then, and then the desire went and grew bigger and bigger. You see, he, he became this kind of person, not only wanting to molest people or children, but he went as far as even tormenting his victims, murdering them. And even after they were dead, continuing to torture their bodies. Very sadistic mind. He wasn't always such a person. You see, Wesley, you know, he, he, he was a very intelligent person. And that's the reason why he always had jobs. He always had money. He, he, he was always, you know, he always had what he needed. And apart from his sadistic, you know, uh, way of thinking, he had a very beautiful personality. In fact, people would find it always easy to talk to him, hence why he was very trustable to hang around with people's kids. But then he got caught so many times. And, all, and, and in one particular time, he mentioned that if they let him out of the prison, he would go and molest more kids. That he was better off to stay in jail where he was. He even wrote a book to help children to stay, away, to stay away from people like him, entitled, When You Meet a Stranger. You see, Wesley Allen was battling inside of him with, with this, this addiction that he was having. He didn't like it, but he was somehow pushed to do it. And so in... 1990, July the 15th, Alan received the death sentence. And months before his execution, it is said that Wesley Allen started to turning his attention towards the Bible. And so he spent some time reading the Bible. And on one particular occasion in, the, in, the, in, an, in an interview, he said, he said, I believe what the Bible teaches I'll go to heaven. I have doubts. But I really like to believe that I'll be able to go up to the three little boys and give them a hug and tell them how sorry I was and, able, and be able to love them with the true love and have no desire to hurt them in any way. 
And so on the 5th of June, 1993, at 12.05 a.m., Wesley Allen Dowd received his death sentence. He has to be particularly hanged because that's how he used to, you know, murder his victims. You see, on that very same night, thousands of radios were tuned to the news channel just to hear whether or not the execution had taken place. While outside the prison, hundreds of people were gathered. Those who were in support of the execution could be heard chanting rhymes like, What the heck? Stretch his neck. While the non-supporters wept at the news that his execution had gone as planned. However, before he was hanged, Wesley Allen was given an opportunity to give any last word. Any last word. After spending years and even decades of molesting kids. Any last word. And this is what astonishingly, astonishingly, Wesley Allen Dodd said. He said, I was once asked by somebody, I don't remember who, if there was any way sex offenders could be stopped. I said, no. I was wrong. I was wrong when I said there was no hope, no peace. There is hope. There is peace. I found both in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to the Lord and you will be saved. Look to the Lord and you will find peace. You see, these last words were jaw-dropping news to any person who knew the crimes this man had done. I mean, can you imagine any last words? And this man says such a thing? After molesting, molesting many children, as he might be for you here and for me, it is still jaw-dropping news to hear a man says such a thing. As you listen to this story, I believe that just like me, many of you here may, might just be wondering, who is this Jesus? I mean, really, who is? Who, who, who is this Jesus that could turn around the life of an individual such as Wesley Allen Dodd? How, how, how can that make sense to you that a man could live such a life and then turn around to a man called Jesus. Who is this Jesus and what he has done to change the mind of Wesley Allen Dodd? Who is this Jesus that came on this earth and claimed to be the son of a God? The son, not just of a God, the son of God, the only true God, according to him. Who is this Jesus that comes to this earth and dies on a cross and says he died for you? Who is he? A man that walks and, and all of a sudden by the time he touches people and says few words, somebody heals? Somebody can speak? Somebody can see? Who's this guy? That books have been written, hundreds of books have been written about him. Poetry, paintings, buildings have been dedicated to this man named Jesus. Who is this Jesus? That Wesley Allen Dodd met. Well, believe it or not, friends, this was the very same question that constantly rang in my mind when I was much younger. You see, the, there's a song that my family and I would sing as, we, as I was much younger, and, and the song is called Hanged on the Cross for Me. It's a French song. It goes on something like, Attaché à la croix pour moi, Jésus. Attaché à la croix pour moi. Il a pris mon péché, il m'a délivré. 
attaché à la croix pour moi. Hanged on the cross for me. Hanged on the cross for me. He has taken my sin. He has delivered me. Hanged on the cross for me. That's what the, the song says. You see, it, it is as if the writer of the song was struggling to believe what this man has done. Hanged on the cross for me. And so this song was constantly going through my mind and I was wondering, how, how could it be that this man would hang on the cross for me? I was born uh, 30 years ago in a country called Democratic Republic of Congo, also known as Zaire at the time. And, uh, you know, we grew up, my family and I, in what you would call a Christian home. Uh, my father is an Anglican, my mom um, uh, Pentecostal. And so, you know, every now and then, you know, when I was growing up, some Sundays we'd go to the Pentecostal church, you know, get the groove on, you know, speaking in tongues and, you know, rumbling, falling apart and dancing. And other Sundays we'd go to the Anglican church and we'd sit there with my father and, he, you know, he'd be listening and then halfway through he'd start sleeping. And, and that was my life, you know, I was in between these two churches and just moving along. We see, we had a, an aspect of Christianity, but we weren't really practicing Somehow, Christianity always had pursued our family. Always. My great-grandfather, his name is, uh, next slide, please. Jao Matandundundulu. He's, uh, he was um, a, a Baptist pastor who um, translated the Bible from English to my tribal language. And, and not only him, but also uh, my grandfather, from my mom's side, has always wanted to become a Catholic priest. If there's one thing, if there was one thing he could accomplish in his life, was to become a Catholic priest. Sadly, he died, and his dream did not come, you know, real. I think my grandmother did not want him to become a Catholic priest. You see, my dad's younger brother is an evangelist, a writer, a book writer, and a preacher. My mom's cousin is a Pentecostal pastor. And so somehow Christianity has always been chasing our family, pursuing our family. And so in our house, me and my siblings, we, you know, we had this, this, this aspect of Christianity. We knew somehow God existed, but, um, you know, we weren't really too sure. But we, we somehow knew there was a God out there. And so I grew up in a family of 10 kids. And uh, one of my siblings is not there, but as you can see, um, I haven't changed much, have I? <laughs> in a family of 10 kids, and my siblings and I were very, very close. You know, we, we, we still are close, and we still spend some time, you know, over the phone, even though I'm not there in person. Um, eight, eight girls and, and two boys. I'm one of the, the, the boys in the family, uh, the youngest boy, my brother, the oldest. And so we grew up in that environment. You see, but sadly, somehow, you know, we had, my father was not very present. You see, my father is still alive, and he's still breathing, and he's still, you know, trying to be there as a father. But, you know, as much as he knows or what he's been exposed about what he should be and do as a father, you see, my father was not just quite there. My father was not there as a father. And so sometimes he'll come home and... And, um, you know, I'll, I'll see him for just a few minutes. He'll go in and watch the telly, and then before you know it, he goes to bed. And maybe for the next few weeks, I would not see my father. Initially, my father had two wives, and my mom be one of them. And then my father, a little time, left the other wife with my siblings, um, who, were, who is my siblings' um, parents, mom. And then they came over, moved on, moved together with us, and that's how come we became one family. And, but before that, you see, my, we, me and the siblings, me and my siblings from my mom's side, we hardly had any connection with my dad. So much so that we were even afraid to ask him anything. You see, we saw my dad as this man that comes in and, and talks to us and, and then just no relationship, no connection. 
And, and, and it took us a long, long time till we could get used to my dad. And even to this day, conversation between me and my dad lasts about three minutes over the phone, if I'm lucky. Most of the time, it goes about a minute or two. It goes something like, hey, dad, how you going? Yeah, good. How can I help? Uh, I'm just checking, you know, trying to find out how you doing. Yeah, I'm all right. Look, I'm in a meeting. I'll call you back. And it usually ends like that. And he doesn't usually call back. You see, he, you see, my father had this perspective of, you know, many African men in his time had that, you know, all he had to do was to provide for your education. And that was about it. That was about his father's duty. There's no need for affection. Because I pay for your school fees, you know, you should know that I love you. Because, you know, I buy you clothes and put food on your table, you should know that I love you. I don't have to say it. I don't have to spend time with you. And so in my heart, I was needing a father who could just get to know me. My siblings and I grew up uh, in the Congo, and this is the house that we were staying at the time. As you can see, my father, being a wealthy man, money was all that was Money was all that mattered to him. You see, though I look well presented in my clothes and speech, believe it or not, brothers and sisters, there are scars that this world has left in me as a result of fatherlessness, which are not very easy to heal, though you may not see it directly. You see, fatherless is, is primarily the main contributor to suicide rates, high school dropout, teen pregnancy, poverty, gang involvement, and these are all incredibly correlated to fatherlessness, not to mention the abstract side of it, such as low self-esteem, lack of sense of approval, anger, identity crisis, and much more. And believe it or not, brothers and sisters, you see, I had been or experienced at least most of them I've been suicidal many times. I had anger management issues, low self-esteem. I had two, I've got two sisters who got pregnant out of wedlock, and I nearly dropped out of high school. You see, to my father, please go back to the previous slides. To my father, money was his way of expressing his love towards us. Money was his way of expressing his love towards us. You see, if, if, if you needed anything, my, my dad would just give you money. He'd be like, you know, it, it'll sort it out somehow. But you see what? I needed more than money. I needed a, fa- a father figure. You see, what I needed was somebody to understand me, someone to understand my personality, my needs, my idiosities, my, my, the person that I can possibly be with my potential. You see, many of us here could probably relate to this because many of us, especially men, we grew up not even knowing what a real man is supposed to be like. We grew up not even knowing what man is and supposed to be. Many of us here are still trying to figure it out. 40 years old, 50 years old, and you still don't know what a man should be. Because many of our fathers are not present. And so as a result of this, my interest and motivation for school dropped once I got into high school. See, high school was, um, for me, school was, I, I wasn't that kind of kid that looked forward to go to the math class. You know, I wasn't like, yeah, let's learn about biology. You know, it just wasn't me. I was the one, I, I, you see, I enjoy more of the social side of school. In fact, at the age of 10, um, I had a close friend of mine named Joe, and, and Joe was very famous in my school, both in the primary school and, and in high school, because Joe could dance. Have you ever heard a thing called hip-hop, break dance, b-boy, pop and lock? Joe could do all those cool stuff, and so I was interested because every time Michael Jackson would come on TV, my feet could not stop moving. And Joe could do all those funny stunts and moves. So I asked Joe, I said, Joe, could you help me how to, you know, could you show me how to dance? And, and Joe was keen enough and he showed me. And before you know it, 
Joe and I became very famous in our school, so much so that every time the school would have an event or anything that was organized, we were called to go and perform. At every event, from primary school all the way to the end of my high school, I can't remember one year where we did not perform. And so the fame and, and, and you know, the big head got in me and, you know, the cool boy aspect got in me. And before you know it, everybody wanted to be my friend. Everybody wanted to talk to me, you know. And, and that was a life. That was a life that I was enjoying in high school. But you see that lifestyle, you see the devil, once, once, once he brings it to one part of his, of his ways, he brings many other things that come with it as well. You see, alcohol, for example, smoking, all those things as well came into their place. You see, sometimes we'll come to school, we'll drink. Before school sometimes, during school, after school, we'll bring bottles of whiskey, bottles of vodka, whatever it is. Come and try out. After school, we'll go into the corners, into you know, an abandoned building, and we, we try all sort of cigarettes, you know, cigars and weed and this and that. And we experienced all that, growing that, and it became part of us. So much so that I, I had a huge struggle with alcohol later on in my life. At the age of 14, I had a prophetic dream about my family, especially about my parents. In the dream, I was right in front of a river, and I could see a sheep with my father's business name, and the sheep was sinking. Everything that was in the sheep was dropping out. Even the people that were on the sheep were, were, were you know, jumping onto the, onto the river because the sheep was sinking. And it wasn't sinking so fast. It was going so slow, but it was going down. And then I found myself all of a sudden in front of a, uh, inside a church, and in that church there was nobody. I was the only one sitting in the church, and right in front of me there was somebody preaching, and guess who it was? My mother. And that was the time when my mom was not even close to God. That was the time my mom was not even thinking about Christianity, you know. It was just a, a thing to go to church, but it wasn't really a thing to actually pray. And so I didn't know what to do with this dream, and so I told my mom, I said, Mom, what what are we going to do about this dream? And so she called her, her pastor, who's still a very good friend of mine today. And her pastor came over and told him the dream, and he prayed. And he said, look, I don't know what it means, but let's pray. We'll find out what God will reveal to us. A few days later, he came back and he said to me, Jonathan, this, you know, this is what a dream means, you know, after God has spoken to me. And as some of you can imagine, it is indeed true that my father's business it was predicted to, to have fall apart, you know, to fall apart. And to this very day, I can tell that my father's business nearly closed three times. And as it is right now, it is still sinking. You see, my father's business, my father owns a, a, a billboard company, a printing, you know, uh, advertising business. So much so that he was the leading advertising company for nearly 30 years in my country. 30 years. And today, it is almost nowhere to be seen. And it's getting worse and worse every year. Slowly but surely sinking. And my mom, who was not very close to God, today is involved in women ministry. Today, she's the one standing up there and encouraging women to get up and pray, to get up and help the needy, to build places for people who do not have much, to give food to the needy. She's out there, the four front hands, feet of Jesus. And the pastor said one thing to me. He said, Jonathan, God said something else to me. I said, what is it, pastor? And he said, God said to me that at some point in your life, he's going to pull you away from everything and you're going to start working for him. And I said, really? I said, come on, you got to be kidding. He said, no, no, no. He said, I said, when would this happen? He said, I don't know when, I don't know how, but God has told me that one day he will pull you away from wherever you are and you start working for him. I said, all right, no worries. Now, what with my life as normal? And so one day we, we went to South Africa, with my family, my family and I, we went to South Africa to, uh, for holidays. And so after we left South Africa, that was in 2006, 
my father asked me and my siblings, he said, would you, like, would you guys like to go back there and finish your high school, do your university and all that? And for me, you know, coming from a French-speaking country and, you know, loving how to dance, hip-hop and all that, it was always interesting to me to learn English because I could, you know, most of the, the hip-hop songs were actually in English. And so for me, I was like, man, this would be a cool thing for me to actually learn English and, you know, start rapping those songs and singing those songs. So I said, definitely, I'll go back to South Africa. And so, you know, we got our bags packed, got the visa before you knew we were in South Africa. And in South Africa, I got into this high school, and um, before you know in that high school as well, things changed. In fact, two particular things happened in that high school. Just a few months after we got into high school, I mean, um, got into South Africa, some of my siblings, in fact, two of my siblings had remained in the Congo to, you know, finish their school there because they didn't want to go to South Africa. But it just turned out to be that some family members decided to, um, some family members from my mom's side, from my dad's side of the family, sorry, decided to gather themselves together and go to my father's place and gave my mom only about a short time to evacuate the place and get out of the house. You see, my father at the time, at that time, had already another woman. And so, because my father was very wealthy and money, in some ways, can talk and can make people do certain things, people were encouraged to go and kick my mom out of the house. You see, things are different back home. It's not like here, you know, you can go to court and, you know. Some, you know, during those days, whoever had more money could pretty much make any decision. So my mom packed the bags, got into a car with my two sisters, and they left. And you see, my mom's family was, um, they respected my mom a lot, only because she married a wealthy man. When they found out that my mom was no more with my dad, she's seen some of the darkest days of her lives with her siblings. She had nowhere to go, really. And so she begged one of her siblings to go and stay at a sibling's place. And they were sleeping on the floor every day. Some days they lacked food. Some days all they had to eat was water because there was no food. And I heard about what has happened, what, 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 what happened then. And I was in, in South Africa and, and my heart was so broken that I wanted... All that I was thinking in my mind was to leave and go home and look after my mother. All that I was thinking in my mind was to drop out of school, go back home, and look after my mother. But how could I do that? I'm just a high school kid. What am I going to do? Go back home and feed her with air and, and water? And so I made a particular a specific promise to myself that I would just get the bare minimum in every class to pass just so that I could finish high school and go home, look after my mom, and hopefully, maybe after high school, I'll have, a, you know, some sort of a good job and I could look after her. And so every year, when things would get tough, I'll look at myself in the mirror and I could see my mom's reflection and tears will fall down my cheeks. And that was my encouragement every year just to get a bare minimum and pass. At the same time, at the new school where I was, you see, people came to find out also that I could dance. And so me and some other friends, we came together and we filmed, you know, we, we, we created a, a, a dance crew and we called ourselves the office boys. And before you know, we became very famous in that school too. And at every event the school will organize, we will ask to perform. So much so that we were like the kings of that school. You see, every year the school organizes this thing called Merry May Day. And today we're like, you know, the school bringing some of the hottest DJs from the country. And they will come there and play some songs. Everybody be dancing and having a good time. And when me and my boys will be coming in, we'll be just walking in and just doing this. And everybody will make ways for us. Because they know it's time for us to perform. And we will perform, we will battle against other people, we will win, and we were the kings of that school. You see, my head was too big at the time 
Glory was all mine at the time. You see, I was thinking I was somebody. While really I was nobody. And so I finished high school. You see, but towards the end of my high school, I've, you see, I've always been interested in spiritual things. And so towards the end of my high school, um, I was already involved in the Catholic Church. As you can see, there's a picture of me doing my first communion, you know, in the Catholic Church in South Africa. And I was always being, I was always interested. But somewhat towards the end of my high school, I came to find out certain things about the Catholic school which did not, you know, uh, just match, you know, with the Bible. Such a thing, as, for example, if you look into most of your Bible and compare that to a Catholic, you know, um, New Testament or sorry, Catholic Church Bible, you will come to find that the second commandment is non-existent. And I believe the nine or the tenth one has been split into two. Right? And this is just one of the, the, the many things that I came to find about the Catholic Church. And so for me, it was not good for me to remain in that church because I realized that there were so many things that were not just matching with the Bible. And so I stepped out of the Catholic Church and my prayer from that day was, Lord, help me to find a church where not only I can worship you comfortably, but also where I can serve you. And so for many years, I wouldn't go to church except for Christmas time, Easter, and if a bug, you know, hit me, and then I'm like, okay, today I'll go to church. But pretty much it was just twice or thrice a year that I would go to church. After high school, you know, I decided to go to the UK to, to do my tertiary studies, and we, actually, we, we tried to apply for the visa about five times. And every time it was getting rejected, every time it was getting rejected, you see, we, we found the school, we, we got the accommodation, and almost the, and the plane ticket was almost even bought. The fifth time when we applied, what the immigration office had said, you see, we had a bank statement that was coming from a French-speaking country, because obviously we are French-speaking people. But everything on that bank statement, from the numbers to the words, everything was in English. So we applied, and... Um, they came back to us and saying to us, look, the reason why we can't give you the visa is because the numbers in your bank statements are in French. Now, if I write one as it is written, you see, over here you've got 2008. If I write two, just like the way it's written then, and you write the same one, would that be in French or in English? Neither. And so I was frustrated, and I let it go. And my, my, my agent said to me, he said, why don't you try for Australia? I said, Australia? I don't recall any of my family members ever conquered Australia. And you see, my family and I, we have the habit of traveling, and we travel a lot. And we like to migrate in different countries. That's the reason why I got family members in all, pretty much all over the world. You know, name the country, and they most likely will be there. But nobody had been here before except for one of my uncle who's a, who's a singer, you know, and, and that was many years ago. And so we decided to, you know, to give it a shot. My prayer when trying to go to the UK and trying to go, to, you know, do my tertiary studies overseas, my prayer to God was, Lord, send me to a place where I don't have family members and friends, where I can become more mature and more responsible. And guess what? The UK was not that place because I had family members there. I had a lot of close friends that were still living in the UK. But Australia was a place where I knew nobody. And so I told my agent, we'll do this once. If I get the visa, I'll go. If I don't get the visa, I'll stay in South Africa. And we tried once, and I got the visa. But guess what? At the same time as I got the visa, and I was getting ready to leave, my father would not let me go while he paid for all the fees to get the visa. All of a sudden, he just wouldn't let me go. And I said, but you pay for everything. He said, no, 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 you can't go. And so one night, my father came. Um, uh, one day, my father came to South Africa for my uncle's funeral. And I went to visit him at his hotel. And I said to my mom, you got to pray. Because if it is God's will for me to go to Australia, then, my, then, then God will open the door for me to go. But if it's not his will, then God should shut every door. So I went to my dad and brought my passport and my visa, and I showed him. I said, Dad, this is my passport. This is my visa. Can I go to Australia? He said to me, I didn't even know you had a visa. I said, how can you not know? I told you everything. He said, yeah, sure, you can go. 
And that's how I started getting ready to go to, to come here to Australia. But you see, when God is trying to open the door somewhere, the devil will try to close that door as well. At that very same time, when I was in South Africa, I got involved into a modeling career. And so I was um, working as a model in South Africa, and the modeling agency that I was working for was a very big modeling agency to the, to the, to the degree where, you know, the, one of the um, Angelina Jolie's assistants came from that agency. Uh, many of our uh, models, you know, got transferred to Donald Trump ag- uh, modeling agency. Many of them, out of them started, you know, working in Milan, in Italy, and so forth. So their plan was to take me the following year to the U.S. and turn me into a big superstar, as they've done in the past for many others. And so I was excited about that, but at the same time, towards the end of that year, before the following year for me to go to the U.S., that was when I was going to Australia. And they were telling me, Jonathan, you're killing your dream. You're killing your career. You can make big money. I did some catwalk, you know, shows for them. And then there was this one, this final one that I had to do before leaving Australia. You see, I was leaving South Africa on the 2nd of October, 2011. That very same night, my flight was at 11 p.m. And that very same night, there was a fashion show taking place in South Africa, the place called the Impera Palace. I don't know if some of you here may know it, but you might Google that up. Now, if you know anything about the Impera Palace, it's not just a place that anybody will host any event. You know, presidents host events there. You know, uh, kings from different countries will come there to host events there. I mean, you have to be packed with money to host events there. And the reason why the fashion show was happening at that place, happening at that place, is because. There was designers and stylists from many and models from different countries that, was, that were coming to that fashion show. And their aim was to come to the fashion show, pick the models that they like, take them back home to where they come from, and turn them into big artists, big models. And my agency asked me to model for that fashion show. And I said no. But guess what? All throughout that day, my mind could not stop thinking about the opportunity of me modeling there and turning into a big superstar. Because they said to me, Jonathan, you know, you could have tons of money, billions of dollars, and you can travel the world. You can go to Australia whenever you want. You can do your studies whenever you want. Why don't you go to this fashion show and then do your Australian thing after? Somehow that night... While I could go to the fashion show and still make it to my plane, somehow, as I thought in my mind, I decided not to. And somehow with some strength, Lord knows where he came from, I hopped on that plane and came to Australia. 3rd of October, 2011, I landed in this country. Now, before you, before I, you know, we come to a close of this message, when I came to Australia, before coming to Australia, I had certain dreams that I was having in South Africa. Dreams that I could not um, understand where I was in places with certain people that I did not know, in places that I didn't even know. And so when I came to Australia, um, I had a flash moment in many instances. One of them, for example, we were living in a place called uh, Curtain 12 in Bentley. And I was in my living room uh, with my friends, and we were sitting there chatting. And there's another friend that came into the living room, and as soon as he walked in the living room, as soon as he stepped right next to the couch where another person was sitting, I had a flash moment of a dream that I had. And guess what? The exact same place with the exact same people doing the exact same thing. Another instance, we were walking to IGA in Bentley, and as we were walking, as we go to a particular place, I remember there was a crack in the, on that footpath. As we got, as we just stepped on that crack, I got a flashback, and guess what? The exact same place, the exact same dream with the exact same people. The third one was when I was working at the Perth Convention Center. I can still remember that dream vividly. We 
And I can remember the instance as well. We were, we were there, and it was at the end of a big night, and many people were just sitting there along the wall, that, you know, where the, the, the office is, and they were just sitting there. And as I was coming, and I was walking, and I was walking, I could see the dream vividly in my mind. And at that time, I knew for sure that this is the place where God wanted me to be. I had many other dreams that I forgot. Some of them that comes here and there are not very clear. And sometimes I believe it's probably because of my disobedience to God. While I was here in, in Australia, I was still living a wild life. The clubs, the women, the drinks. You see, sometimes, one time when I was in, in South Africa, my friend told me, because see, I was trying to quit alcohol because it became so much. I was working with a bottle of gin in my pocket. And wherever I would go to my friend's place, if they've got Coke or juice, whatever, I would mix it with, the, with a bit of gin and I would drink. And that was my life at the time. At some point, I tried to stop all that. And my friend looked at me and said to me, Jonathan, you know you love drinking. You're not very serious with women. And this is just who you are. You have to accept it and live with it. I went away and, and, and called my pastor and said, my pastor, uh, Pastor Claude, I said, are you sure about that, what God told you about me? Is that still going to happen? Because where I am right now is pretty bad. And according to my friend, that I will never change in my life. He says, Jonathan, I don't know when and how. But all I know is that what God says is going to happen. And so one particular day, I was... In my room, bored, bored, bored. Sunday, I remember meeting a man at the at the university who was selling books. His name is Bruce, and he was selling books. And I saw some Christian books, and I thought, oh, "This is nice, and all that." And I grabbed some, and there was a DVD there, and I took the DVD as well. And and he said, "I said to the DVD, I said, can I can I buy the DVD?'" And he said to me, "You can't buy the DVD, but you can you can you know I can lend it to you, and you can bring it back to me." And so we did that quite a number of times. And, um, you know, one day he gave me a flyer. And the flyer was for um, a uh, discovery sort of program, you know, archaeology with Anthony Kent. And so um, I had that flyer and he was in the bin. And on that particular Sunday, as I was so bored, have you ever looked for things in your bin? I was sitting there and the bin was right there. And as I looked at the bin... There was a flyer inside the bin. There was a flyer inside the bin. And I went to grab the flyer and I just dusted it up and said, read it. And then there was still one more session of that archaeology program. And so I got on my bike and went to Curtin. And, and there I watched the presentation. And I met a friend there. His name is Joey. And Joey lived in the same neighborhood as me. And so he invited me, you know, for dinner. At his place once. Rocked up there with my suit and my pants. You know, I thought I was still the big fashion guy. Walked in there and most of the guys were dressed up in shorts and t-shirts. That very night I had the very best vegetarian food I've ever had in my life. I never knew that food could taste so good without meat. And Joey kept on inviting me every now and then to his house for Bible studies. At the same time, Next slide, please. Bruce invited me as well for a series called The Secret of Prophecy. And so what was happening with this one is, is that I would go to the clubs Friday nights. And I knew a friend of mine lived next to Curtin. So we would go. I will ask him to go and sleep over his place. Because in the morning when we wake up, you know, I could just brush my face and brush my teeth and just have the same clothes that I had in the club, you know, because sometimes... When we used to go clubbing, I used to dress up very classy. And so, you know, the clothes were still appropriate for me to go to church with. But I just didn't know that the night before I was in the club. You see, I'll rock up there, they would be thinking, oh, this brother dressed up so good just to come to the program. And I'll do that every weekend. We go to the clubs, and the next morning, before you know it, I'll run to church for the secret of prophecy. One particular day we were in the club. And uh, as I was standing there, I heard a voice vividly speaking to me. 
saying to me, you're not supposed to be here. Not once, not twice, thrice. It happened on two occasions. The second time it did happen, we went home with my friend. I said to him, I said, Ali, tomorrow we're going after the last time. Because after that, I want to take my relationship seriously with God. And so after that occasion, I remember it was the 9th of June, 2012. After many years of trying to quit alcohol, he had left me without even lifting a finger. Some nights after, Joey invited me to his place. And it was just a casual gathering, and he put on a DVD. And it was uh, this man named Dwayne Lemon. And he was standing there and sharing his testimony, his story. You see, this is a man who had been through life just as I've been through life. He has done the very exact same thing I did in my life. You see, he was famous as well for dancing. But much more than that, you see, he danced professionally. And he got paid for it. Gang involvement. Not that he was involved, or as I was involved. But we always found ourselves among gang members. And as he was sharing his story... I could hear the Father's love. You see, I could hear the Father telling me, I want to spend some time with you. I want us to get together. I could hear the Father telling me, I love you. I could hear the Father telling me, I am there with you. You see, because that very same man found a flyer on the street, on the floor, and he picked it up. And before you knew it, he gave his life to God. After watching that DVD, I fell on my knees. And tears would not stop for flowing in my eyes. And all I could think in my mind is what wondrous love is this what wondrous love is this oh my soul that has caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for me has the song hanged on the cross for me hanged on the cross for me not just for anybody for the world yes but for me he has taken my sins. He has delivered me. And so he sent his son to hang on the cross for me. See, friends, I gave my life that time, October 28th, 2012. Because Jesus endured the separation with our Heavenly Father, on the cross we will never have to endure separation with the heavenly father you see we have escaped eternal fire we have escaped eternal separation from our father who loves us our father who can give us attention Because through Christ's sacrifice, we have been reconciled with the Father. Friends, we will never have to feel neglected or abandoned or fatherless. Because we have a true Father in heaven who will never abandon us. Who will never neglect us. Hence 1 John 3 verse 1. You see, the writer was struggling to describe this. He was struggling to describe this love from the Father. And so in, in, in struggling to find words to say, he says, look and see. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. 
that we should be called the children of God? What wondrous love is this? See, through Jesus, God poured out his relentless love upon the bruised and broken world, upon the bruised and broken person, upon you. Nothing less than the enormous sacrifice Jesus made for sinners could give us a clear picture of the Father's vast love for us. Friends, have you heard the voice of the Father this morning? Have you heard the Father calling you this morning? I don't know where you are in your life. But today, whether you have wandered just a bit, whether you don't know him, or whether you've known him for your whole life, today, once again, he would like to remind you. He would like to invite you. He's calling you back into his home. He's calling you back into his family. You see, my hope, brothers and sisters, more than anything is that for many of us who know the love of the Father to go and knock on the doors knock on the hearts of those who have not heard that story because you see I was one of those once upon a time but God has led me to come to a place where I know I've got a father who cares for me. That in my lowest moments, he steps down from his throne and talks to me, walks with me, carries me in my most painful moments. He's still standing at his son at every person's door. Will you go with Jesus? And knock on the hearts of those who are still in darkness. Knock on the hearts of those who are still searching for light. Knock on the hearts of those who are feeling like they don't have a father. Of those who feel like they don't have a mother. Or those, of those who feel like there is no love in their life. Will you go? And share the love of the Father with them. What wondrous love is this? I pray and hope that as we leave this place this morning, that we will leave with the courage and the desire to go out there and reach out to those who need to hear this message, to those who need to remember. That there is a father who cares for them and loves them beyond measure. May God bless you.